When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for August 25th, 2016, the Meet the New Trump edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine is in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. John Dickerson is taking a much-deserved break. Uh, I hope he's in some secret location. Although he did answer an email, so he's not totally off of whatever he's off of all devices. Oy, I disapprove. Uh, but in any case, he has a worthy substitute. Adam Davidson, now of The New Yorker, joins us from his vacation. Hello, Adam. Hey, David. I'm in the Berkshires. And true story, I swear this is true, I had a stress dream last night that while doing this podcast, John Dickerson was sitting next to me judging everything I say. Even though he's like the least judgy guy um, <laughs> in America, it, it was a very stressful stress dream. That, that's... I can't believe that this show produced an anxiety dream for you. That is not what we are going for. That's, that is very funny. We'll have to, we'll have to talk to your uh, shrink about that. Yeah, I also same night had a stress dream about not being able to find my desk at the New Yorker. So there's a lot of stress going on in my dreams these days. Uh, <laughs> congratulations on your new job. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm very excited, but sad to leave the Times. On this week's GapFest, has Donald Trump actually flip-flopped on immigration? Then another trove of Hillary emails is coming in the scandal that never ends. We will talk about that scandal that never ends. And then Emily has written a brilliant article about the death penalty and another way it might end or why it's become geographically so confined as to where it is where it's being uh, carried out. We will dig into that article. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And then in Slate Plus, Huma Abedin, Hillary Clinton advisor, wife of Anthony Weiner, is hinting that she never gave permission to filmmakers to use her in the much acclaimed Weiner documentary. Does she have a right to sue when... Does a source consent to participating in a project? If you are not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. The new Trump. In interviews and public appearances, Donald Trump appeared to radically change his rhetoric about immigration, saying he would merely enforce current law and focus on sending the bad ones home, acknowledging that was what uh, President Obama was already doing, and saying that while there would be no amnesty, that many of those people who are here not legally in the country would be allowed to stay, provided they paid back taxes and weren't the bad ones. It appears to be some kind of really weirdo pivot, less probably to win over Hispanic voters, who 
I think are a lost cause at this point, than to signal to white voters, hey, I'm not as racist as you think I am. Also, he continues to yell about building the wall. Emily, is this is this a, a big switch or is it simply just some sort of, you know, transient rhetorical gamesmanship? I mean, how about both? It is a big switch because he was talking before about mass deportation and his nostalgia for Dwight Eisenhower's Operation Wetback, which is a embarrassing, shameful episode in our nation's history in which we really did use the National Guard and a lot of troops to round up immigrants and deport them and also just scare them into leaving. So he's invoked those images. And now he's talking about essentially just continuing Obama's policy. I mean, Obama also concentrated on or he said he was concentrating on deporting criminals when he came into office. He deported hundreds of thousands of people, most of whom had quite minor criminal convictions on the records. In a lot of cases, the only conviction was simply entering the country without authorization as opposed to a crime independent independent of that. And Obama has reduced the number of deportations on his watch. So I guess Trump is saying he would amp them up again. Mostly, though, I just feel incredibly impatient with having to parse all of this, because this is a person who says whatever's in his head at the moment, he throws whatever spaghetti at the wall he feels like throwing. And it's not a coherent policy. They've been canceling speeches in which he was supposed to put forward some whole set of ideas. And so instead, he just like strings together words like firm and fair without really explaining what they mean. And it's I I just feel frustrated that he is a major party candidate. And thus, we have to take this completely seriously. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I think the essential read for me is Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo. He's just been so good at is seeming to get inside the head of what is going on at the Trump campaign. And he's been very powerful in his predictions. And And I think his Trump's razor, the idea that the stupidest possible thing going on is probably what is going on, seems really true that Trump does not have any sort of understanding of immigration policy. He doesn't have a vision for how to enforce the vague ideas he has. He's surrounded by a group of people, some of whom seem to be reasonably sophisticated about how to present this to the public, others of whom seem to to want to spark something like a race war. And somehow out of that mess comes completely confused messages that make no sense because they actually literally make no sense. For me, the essential watch yesterday was... Uh, Rachel Maddow interviewing Kellyanne Conway about the Muslim ban, and it's just awesome. I mean, it. it I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> to, the the Muslim ban is terrible. Everything Trump says about immigration is terrible. But watching Kellyanne Conway trying desperately to sound like she's representing some reasonable set of thoughts, but being completely incapable of answering any of Rachel Maddow's questions. It's it, 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 to me, it just reveals everything that's going on. What you said, Emily feels exactly right. It's absurd that we're spending time trying to parse this. I mean, it's, you know, I have an uncle who says crazy stuff and I don't spend a lot of, you know, since I was like 15, I realized, Oh, don't pay any attention to him. But we as a nation need to pay attention to our, crazy uncle. To push back a tiny bit on that, there has been a week with a new team in place, this mix of Conway and Bannon. And I think people expected, oh, because Bannon is there and Bannon represents Breitbart and the white nationalist nativist bomb throwing, they were expecting more of that. Instead, we've seen what appears to be several deliberate 
attempts. That, now, I'm not saying as a policy matter, these attempts have meaning, but they do seem to, to represent a tactics change by Trump to not sound so incendiary, to ostensibly reach out to African-American and Latino voters, the expressing regret for things he said. It does appear to rhetorically be a different kind of thing that he's doing than what he was doing before. I don't think so. I think... Yeah, but uh, did you watch the ad that's running on the airwaves right now? Sorry, Adam. I mean, he... It's total doublespeak. If you watch this new ad... 30-second ad. It's about Hillary has open borders. We're going to keep America, make America safe again. Has this very alarmist images of hordes of people coming in. It's the same stuff. So, yes, maybe on... He's trying to make two contradictory appeals at once. He's trying to seem more respectable in the mainstream media. And then he's still going after this xenophobic kind of hate-mongering appeal to voters. And there's an accumulation of different things he's saying, but there's not there doesn't seem to be choice in what he's saying. He's not saying, I'm going to choose this path and not that path. And actually, I had an interesting exchange with a buddy of mine yesterday who was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, talking about how Donald Trump has created this space for Hillary to do this really well. Like she really gets to avoid the kind of civil war in her own party between a sort of DLC, Wall Street kind of center-left part of the Democratic Party and a left-left Bernie Sanders Democratic Socialist or just burn the whole thing down um, wing of the Democratic Party. Hillary gets to not have to answer that. She gets to not make that choice. But that's entirely because Trump is creating so much attention on his end and so much fire and craziness on his end that that Hillary gets to comfortably live in this cocoon where she doesn't have to make choices. But Trump clearly needs to make choices. I mean, it's clear that there's whatever there is, I'm making the numbers up, but there's 15 or 20 percent of people who are going to vote for anyone who's a Republican and do not care. There's 15 or 20 percent who are actual either explicit or implicit white nationalists who like Trump's most incendiary rhetoric. And and there's some overlap there. So he's, you know, seems to have both like a floor of 35% and a ceiling of 40%. If he wants to get to 44%, 46%, he just, he needs five or 6% of the voting public, which is a lot of people, many millions of people to come to him. And so he's just decided, I'm going to say to the crazies what the crazies want. I'm going to say to the more center-right people what they want. But he doesn't get to do that anymore. It's too late. He's he's the the thing what, that got what, him to this. I, but I don't even understand. You're just you're just asserting he doesn't get to do that. How do you know he doesn't get to do that? He just did it, and, well, and it's not working. I'm, I mean, he gets well, to, yeah, obviously. He, who knows what's, his poll what's numbers working. aren't rising enough. His poll numbers well, are, are, but they are. But the poll numbers are rising a little bit. Now, who you know what what you can attribute it really. to? I don't know. I mean, the, you know, the, the state level numbers are, are pretty grim, you know, and, and, and with each passing day, it, it you know, we're, we're talking about Missouri now. We're not talking about Pennsylvania anymore. We're talking about, um, so I suppose it's possible <laughs> that somehow saying on the same day that you're not rescinding the complete Muslim ban, that you're, um, sent, you know, airing the most racist, comical commercials, and also vaguely hinting that you're just going to follow the law is going to work. I, I guess you're right. I don't I, I don't get to say with the but, fish, but, but I don't think it's going to work. I, I think he has to make a choice. No, I, and it's well, it, it is not clear that anything could work because he has a he's a terrible candidate, an evil man, obviously unfit to be president. 
you know, a significant fraction of voters know that. It doesn't seem to me impossible, given the state that the position that he's in, that they could have said, like, our we have no good options. Our best option is something where we are trying to mollify a set of center right white voters who just think you're too disgusting to be voted for right now. But if you can sort of convince them that it's not that bad and hold their nose, that that may get us there. That play. I agree with that. That seems like their best play. It's, cer- it's certainly better than doubling down on pure alt right, where that where obviously the ceiling is is what it is. I was talking to someone the other day in the line at the grocery store who was open to voting for Trump, and he was saying to me that he feels like he doesn't want to kick all the immigrants out, but maybe there are too many of them. He used. He said, "I'm not sure what the right word is. Maybe like waterlog." So I just want a. F- few less. And I said, well, I don't really think that's what Trump is calling for. And he said, well, yeah, but things seem calmer in the last week or so. He was sort of, you know, wanting to imagine a gentler version of Donald Trump. And so holding on to any kind of evidence that that person might emerge. And so that I think is the the play that you're talking about, David. And And I think maybe you can think that you're you can say two contradictory things in two different planes of media right you can make an appeal through an ad that goes after your hardcore supporters but then you can have kellyanne conway on msnbc on rachel maddow and maybe you think she's ridiculous but maybe someone else who just wants some confirmation of some kind of more reasonable stance will be reassured by that but the problem is he already said all these things. Like, he, he already said them. So the TV blitz, the media, which I, I will agree with him on one thing, we are definitely out to get him, will play these things over and over again. And he's already said them. Like, I mean, just as a thought experiment, if today we decided, hey, by November, I want to have somebody out there as a person who gets a whole bunch of, like, center-right or even just kind of center, non-ideologically aligned people to agree with that person, to like that person. Donald Trump is not the guy we would go with (laughs) if we had a list of people we were considering. We would say, oh, that's a lot of baggage. He's really got a lot of attention. That's a big hole to dig out of. And I'd say this is why the the polls are so important, not just the overall number, but, but the specifics. If he had a few more battleground states, if he was one or two percent away in Pennsylvania and Ohio and North Carolina and Florida, then I think that would work. That would make sense. But I think you're talking about a huge lift. You're talking about in many battleground states, a double digit deficit. And I just, I just don't, I think he's too weak. I think it's over. I think it's not, it's no longer, I mean, barring some October surprise type WikiLeaks kind of thing, I think this election's over. Of course, they're going to flail around. They're going to do whatever they can do. And it's, but it's not like interesting. It's not, but it can't be over. It's not even Labor Day yet. They have all these debates. Like there's just too much time to have that degree of confidence about it, I think. And even if it is over, there's a big difference between it being over and you picking up 35% of the vote and losing Georgia and Arizona and Missouri and North Carolina and, the, and, the, and North Carolina and losing the Senate significantly and even barely holding the House. There's a difference between that and having a kind of, run-of-the-mill, respectable loss. A lot of Republicans, I think there are a significant number of Republicans who just, they can't stand Hillary. The country has become so partisan and poisonlessly partisan. People want to have an excuse to vote for their party. And what Trump is doing 
and maybe he's not intended and maybe it won't last and maybe this is just like a, a weekly blip. They are attempting to give people an excuse, a reason that, that people feel like they can cast a vote and not feel sick about it, which is the way people a lot of a lot of otherwise sort of center right Republicans feel right now is that they couldn't do it because they would they know it would be wrong. Yeah, no, there's and no question. Trying- That's what all the you know, going to white suburbs and talking about how awful it is to be black in America. It's clearly aimed oh, at white. God, that rhetoric is so yeah. offensive. It's disgusting. <sighs> and it's clearly aimed at exactly who you're talking about, like suburban Philadelphia, suburban Milwaukee, uh, you know, uh, uh, white college educated voters who are like, oh, I don't I don't like all this like crazy racist stuff, but I want to believe that Trump's like a reasonable businessman and he's going to make reasonable choices. I just think the whole I mean, I, I guess that that's what I'm saying. It's just like ev- everything that's failing and collapsing. They try something like, I, you know, they, they, they come up with some idea and then they might do that idea. And that's what's happening. A bunch of. People are in a room at Trump headquarters and they come up with these plans and then they go and tell Mr. Trump and some days he listens to them and some days he doesn't or some hours he does and some hours he doesn't. But to us, as people outside, we just it's just funny. It's just lame. It's like, no, you don't. It's, it's not going to work. It's over. I mean, barring yeah, I don't a surprise, think, barring some. See, hill- see, I just don't I just don't think it's funny at all. The fakely moderate Trump, the Trump that is doing this is a much more dangerous he's going to lose the election as you say barring surprise it i do think it is over i think it's done but i also think it would be it would be much better if he lost the election with 35 percent of the vote and with a you know a clean sweep in the senate and a, and you know even the house at risk that would be that was is what as a citizen i want to happen and anything that he is doing that makes it more likely that the republicans hold the senate and hold the house with a strong majority is problematic. Totally agree with that. Yeah. And why do you say that, David? Be- do you say that because you want the Republicans to have to re- entirely rethink their electoral map, or because you want Hillary to come into the presidency and be able to enact be- the? Policy because I want she the president to, to be able to govern. Can I just quickly say, like, what this reminds me of is, I, you know, I was a reporter in Iraq and Baghdad from 2003 to 2004, and as things really went off the rails, all reporters, no reporters were allowed to live in the green zone then, so we would all live out in the city of Baghdad, we'd experience the city of Baghdad, we'd talk to real Iraqis, and then we'd go to hear the official Bush administration take at these press <laughs> conferences in the green zone. And it felt very similar where a bunch of people were in a room in the green zone and they'd come up with whatever fantasy they had. This is the last throws. We finally have brought democracy, whatever. And it was just hilarious. I mean, it was just ridiculous. We knew so much more about Propaganda. Iraq than they did. It was just the sad, desperate flailings of failing PR people. And this just reminds me of that 100%. Like Kellyanne Conway, whatever. I mean, I'd love... I love the Wiener documentary, but I'd prefer the documentary of this. I hope somebody's taping it because it's, I mean, it's sad and terrible and tragic and it's making America a worse country. So it's not funny in that sense, but it's funny in the sense of- But at least we should get a good movie out of it at the end. At least we should get a good movie. Yeah. This episode of The GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like 
Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Clinton email scandal refuses to die, even though it was seemed to have been stabbed to death by Jim Comey a couple months ago. It lives. This week brought us several new twists. First, a lawsuit brought by Judicial Watch, I think, long time. Yes. Clinton. Clinton Old lawsuit, new life. Uh, led to the release of a bunch of emails that were sent by either by or to Huma Abedin relating to State Department stuff, donors, Clinton Foundation donors trying to get stuff out of the State Department. The FBI released to Congress some of the records of its investigation of Hillary Clinton. So Congress is now undoubtedly about to start leaking things it's not supposed to leak. And then a federal judge in D.C. ordered the release of 15,000 emails, emails that were previously not released. It's so, God, the nomenclature here is crazy. Hillary Clinton was just ordered to answer written questions about uh, the emails Although she probably won't have to do that till after election. And that's in the judicial watch suit. The amount of energy being devoted to this Clinton email stuff is genuinely obscene. And that's not really a question. It's just an observation. Um, (laughs) But, okay, Emily, was there anything in the, in particular, the emails from Huma Abedin, which were about various people seeking access favor, that was shocking? No. So I want to draw a line between process and substance here. And you just asked a question about substance. So let's talk about substance. I don't see substance that indicates real corruption. I do think there were there was at least one person and probably more people at the Clinton Foundation who were asking for access for people who were either donors or the causes of donors. And I think that's icky. I don't like the Clinton Foundation relationship to the State Department. I don't like the idea that, you know, Hillary and Bill Clinton have been raising money from like gross oligarchs. And I think they should stop doing that now, not if Hillary wins, which was what Bill Clinton promised the other day. And I wish they had stopped a while ago. But when you look at what was actually going on, you know, whatever. The AP AP did a big story. Um, You know, the sort of headline from it was that the majority, like 84 out of 150 something, probably have those numbers slightly wrong, but that most of the meetings that Clinton took as Secretary of State were Clinton Foundation donors. But as Matt Iglesias has done a good job of pointing out, that's just the wrong denominator. She had, you know, more than a thousand meetings with lots of people. It's only by limiting the count of the meetings to, quote, private citizens that you get to this majority figure. And then when you look at the AP story of what she was actually doing for people, there's no there there. You don't see her doing any, like, really crooked favor, even semi-crooked favor for anyone. So again, it's process versus substance. And I think you're seeing that now also playing out with this lawsuit. I think Judicial Watch is totally within bounds to argue that 
Hillary set up her private email server in order to evade the Freedom of Information Act. That seems plausible to me. I think she should have to answer questions about what she was actually doing. Not that I really think she's going to illuminate that question since she's failed to thus far. But that seems reasonable. That judge's order is reasonable as a matter of process. As a matter of substance, we already, you know, know, I mean, maybe something else will come out, but we've, we already have a sense that almost all of these emails were banal. They weren't classified. We haven't seen any real harm come out of this private email server. It's the process problem of the, w- the way in which she set it up, the way in which she kept it running when it was so predictably not a good idea and in violation of the rules or like practically in violation of the rules. It's those process issues that are a problem for her. I mean, I certainly agree that there is nothing in the substance. I'm not even that disturbed by the process, honestly. Like, it seems to me, going back to my just general belief in that corruption and favors are good goods for the political system, seems to me okay, you know, that you can buy a certain amount of access to our leaders. So I, I, I guess I'm not even that I'm not even that troubled by the process. Particularly seems seems fine. It's not great. You you want the you want people who are unable to buy that access also to have channels. But it doesn't seem to me like the worst thing in the world that people who have social connections and political connections and economic connections to Hillary Clinton uh, then are able to call on her and ask her questions and favors. I got. Doesn't seem, I got. That doesn't say, seem like that doesn't seem tragic to me. I've spent a decent amount of time at the Clinton Global Initiative. I I sort of fell into this thing, which what I'm about to say means I'm probably going to fall out of this thing. But I've been because I've spent a lot of time reporting in Haiti. I they often ask me to moderate their big Haiti panel every year, and and to be clear, I don't make any money or anything like that. But I do go and moderate a panel at the Clinton Global Initiative and go to a few other sessions, and I've done some other things there. And there is a real creepy vibe to me personally at the Clinton Global Initiative. It seems to me that it is all about buying access. You know, it's incredibly expensive just to go to the thing. It's hundreds of thousands or hundred something thousand dollars to go. And you meet all these people who are sort of selling their little private equity energy startup or whatever. And there's sort of these explicit ways in which you get access. You pay more money to get more access to political leaders and to really rich people. There's this, and, and to big corporate leaders, there's this kind of creepy theater that happens where you have the CEO of Coca-Cola or IBM or whatever, or GE up there with President Clinton, and they're just bathing each other in love over how generous and wonderful they are and how much they care about the world. And all these like earnest people applauding and thrilled. And then, you know, every hour or so they parade, you know, Angelina Jolie is hustled through a room and she doesn't stop or talk to anyone. She's not like hanging out, but you get to say that you were with Angelina Jolie that morning. It just feels like the worst version of an elite selling access to the aspirational, to creating this theater of doing good, but it's all about something else. It really feels gross. I remember one year, the opening night was, opening night party was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And they literally, like, there was the second floor that was blocked off by Secret Service where Bill Clinton is standing where you can see him with all the, like, truly elite, and then the rest of us are, like, staring up at them because we didn't pay enough money to get up there. Literally really holding gross. it above There's your head. Some, yeah. Given that, given that, Adam, should they do what they said they're going to do after the election right now, which is cut off foreign donors now? 
they and, and, and my experience, by the way, just to, to, to reiterate, because I would be involved in kind of planning these panels is the Clinton Global Initiative, which is separate from the Clinton Foundation related, but a separate staff, a separate office, at least it used to be. They would really want like a good event, like with controversy and actually, you know, they the reason they came to me is because I, you know, have produced radio shows and they wanted like to create a good hour of conversation where people disagree. And then the Clinton Foundation typically would come in and say, no, 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 you, you need to do it this way, where it's just a bunch of people congratulating each other on how awesome they are. And, and here's a head of state of a foreign government. To, who needs to be on that panel, even though they have literally nothing to say, um, but we promised him a slot. Yes, it's disgusting. If you are planning for 12 years to run for president or eight, 16 years, whatever it is, don't set up a foundation where you're beholden to scumbags from other countries. Like, yeah, that that's ridiculous. And if you're secretary of state, tell your husband not to do business with them. And there's this like second tier meme, which some people have been, like the Clinton Foundation does so much good around the world. I feel fairly confident it is not in the top tier. I mean, if you talk to development professionals, it is not in the top tier. I have seen their work in Haiti up close in person. There's some very good people who work there, but they are Haiti is one of their singular focuses. It's a very small country. They have not had a major impact on Haiti. It's more the performance of very public <laughs> charity, not the actual intervention but it's not in good. deep and meaningful ways. I Yeah, I guess I just, I, I somehow I'm not as worked up as you guys are. I assume that there's going to be a lot of laundering access in the world. Like that is what happens. And, and that that's... Yeah, but it's our job that we, as journalists that's, that's, is to not like that and make and say it's bad. I no longer believe that it's our job as journalists to say that this is always so bad because I, I think the alternative, I think the squeaky clean, you can't have any of this is much worse. I think that we, the. But your usual defense of this is within government. It's to hark back nostalgically to the days of, you know, tr favor trading and earmarks and people making deals in smoke filled rooms within the context of the political system. This is like a creature from another planet coming in, right? Where. It, the analogy to corporate boards is the right one. You have a different sector of the social structure influencing what's happening in government and, you know, the potential for and the appearance of Hillary Clinton using her position as secretary of state to make something happen in Haiti, which may have, as Ad, according to Adam, kind of minimal value, but is getting a lot more attention and hype and love than it really deserves. And there's a blending of government and foundation work. And that I that should I think that absolutely should give us pause. And we've had the Obama administration that had at least as far as I can tell, a cleaner approach to all of this. And <laughs> hasn't it been nice not to have to like worry about, you know, the the sort of what what does the bag of the Clintons do carry, which is this like, trust us, we're bending you, the rules, yeah, but our intentions are hey, pure, so don't you, worry you know, about it. But, just look the you, other way. You know, but if if there had been slightly more corruption in the Obama administration, but that had allowed certain kinds of <laughs> bills or a larger stimulus Reforms to get through. To I would happily take that. A larger mm -hmm. stimulus had gotten through because everyone realized, oh, we got to we got to do a favor for all these uh, cement manufacturers who've given us a bunch of money. Let's do those favors, and that will allow us to up this but, but, up this stimulus, but, you know, forty billion dollars. But that David, would be good. you're that'd be okay. I think I think you know, there's a deep literature about this in economics. You know, we're talking about in the literature, it's called rent seeking, like trying to make money not by creating good products and services that someone wants, but by 
capturing value from the government. All countries have some rent-seeking, but the more rent-seeking there is, the less growth you have, the less equitable it is. And you've just I would say you have accidentally made the argument against yourself. Because if, if you talk about the stimulus... If, that happens a lot on the show, actually. Yes, it happens. Go ahead. And, and in private <laughs> conversation as well, I've noticed. <laughs> no, no, I, I find you a stimulating companion <laughs> in conversation. But if you talk about the stimulus in particular, it was a mediocre stimulus because <laughs> there was too much rent-seeking in it. What we wanted was quick, sharp money flowing very quickly to people who could spend it. And we wanted more than $800 billion. We wanted $1.5 trillion, something like that. It was the best that economic policy could offer. And the reason it didn't work is because our government is too mired in rent-seeking. Rent-seeking encompasses things that are legal and illegal, so it's not an exact analog to corruption, but it, we can call it effectively corruption. And I would argue that one of the core challenges we face right this minute as a country, not this new crisis created by Trump, but the the crisis that would have existed if it, a, an actual reasonable, competent Republican was running, is the complete transformation of our economy into a rent-seeking financial system in which, and this is, I sound like a radical person, but this is mainstream Republican views among economists anyway, that one of the main drivers of economic activity in our country is Wall Street and finance and insurance capturing interest, camp, capturing influence on Washington in Washington, and making money not by creating good products and services that allocate capital in a good, low-risk way, but the opposite, by preventing economic activity from happening in other parts of the economy, increasing risk, but increasing their own personal benefit. This is a huge, like, if Donald Trump didn't exist, I would call this the greatest threat to democracy, to our way of life. And Hillary Clinton is gross on this stuff. I would love for this election to be one in which we really talked about that. I mean, obviously, I fully support Hillary Clinton. I can't wait to vote for her. You know, if I had time, I'd go move to Missouri or Ohio or somewhere so my vote could, could actually count. So I'm not saying this disqualifies her, but I wish this was a major part of the national conversation. And to me, the Clinton Foundation, when you see a panel of Wall Street people talking about how great they are because they gave $23,000 or whatever to some charity, it's gross. All right, let's leave it there with you slapping me down as, a, as ever. Man, I feel like I, that I feel like with both you, the two of you here, and no John. John is never John's never mean to me, but both of you are happy. Well, to and be Adam mean had to me. this up close view that he could like deploy, which was pretty hard for you to combat. I liked that a lot. I love you, David. That's okay. You don't need to say that. No need to say it. <laughs> I just felt like saying that. I've never heard you so wounded. I'm not. Oh, <laughs> I'm not that wounded. I'm not that wounded. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Emily has a big story. Maybe it's a cover story. I mean, I can't tell yet. In the New York Times Magazine this no, week. No, the cover story is the U.S. Open this week. Oh. Well, she has a big story in the New York Times Magazine this week about the geographical discongruities, inequities in the death penalty. Emily, just why don't you just 
start by explaining the heart of the piece and we can go from there. The death penalty is on the decline in America, but there are a small, tiny fraction of counties, 16 out of more than 3,000, that are still regularly using the death penalty. And the measure um, that I'm referring to comes actually from Justice Breyer. He wrote an opinion last year in which he called for reopening the question of whether the death penalty is constitutional. And he pointed to 16 counties that have five or more death sentences between 2010 and 2015. It's really a tiny number. So after Justice Breyer wrote this opinion, a couple of different groups of scholars, Brandon Garrett at the University of Virginia, and then a project at Harvard Law School called the Fair Punishment Project run by Robert Smith, they both kind of delved into the question, almost like the natural experiment that this new geography presents. And the question is, okay, so why these places? Why are these 16 counties outliers? What's happening there? So one possible obvious explanation could be that they have more murders, that they're using the death penalty to deter killings that are a bigger problem there. But that doesn't turn out to be the explanation because the 16 counties don't include places like Chicago and Philadelphia, places that have lots of murders, lots of places in the United States, lots of municipalities municipalities have high numbers of murders and don't really use the death penalty anymore or don't use it regularly. And so haven't instead, Chicago and haven't Illinois and Pennsylvania barred the death penalty? So isn't that not they a, have moratoriums right now? Yes, exactly. So, so they could bring it back. The law is still technically right. But the doesn't laws, that but they have not make it a well, anyway, go ahead. Not make it a good comparison. Well, good comparison, in Pennsylvania, yeah. it's a very recent moratorium. And so you could still have enough death penalty cases out of Philadelphia. In fact, you only have three since 2009. So it, it holds up pretty well, actually. And then, then there are lots of other municipalities I could name as well. So what is happening here? It turns out there are really three key factors, according to these researchers. A, an aggressive prosecutor, someone who's in office who really makes the death penalty and seeking it a mission. Then you have some real breakdown in the system of criminal defense for poor people. It can come in a variety of different ways, but there's something wrong with the system of defense. And then the third element is a legacy of racism, of racial bias, of racial exclusion, um, and the way in which that history is continuing to play out in terms of things like who gets to serve on a jury, you know, how many of the people who are receiving the death penalty are African-American. And so I was, you know, sort of absorbing all this research as it was coming in. And then particularly, I got interested in Jacksonville, Florida, a case there where there was an awful, horrible killing in 2013. A 20-year-old girl named Shelby Farah, who was the store manager at a PCS store, a guy came into the store, a man named James Rhodes, according to all the evidence and surveillance. He walked in, he had a gun, he pointed at her, he asked her for the money in the register, she gave it to him, and then he shot her anyway. So the state attorney in Jacksonville, Angela Corey, sought the death penalty. And then it turns out the story is more complicated, that James Rhodes is not necessarily at all an obvious candidate for execution because of the history of abuse and neglect that he suffered all his growing up. He was actually raised in a state home. And then the other particular factor in this case is that Darlene Farah, Shelby's mother, has decided, along with her two children who are still alive, that 
she really doesn't want the death penalty. And she has been public about that view in a way that has brought her a lot of trouble from the state attorney's office and really kind of galvanized a political campaign to unseat Angela Corey. So Angela Corey is up for election on August 30th. It's going to be really interesting to see what the voters do. And then the other piece of this, and I promise I'll stop talking, is that Florida has a very unusual system in which public defenders are elected. There are only a couple other states that do that. And what that means is very uneven kind of quality and performance. So there are some really excellent public defenders in Florida, and then there are some problem public defenders. And in Jacksonville and Duval County, the public defender whose name is Matt Shirk is a guy who came in, he'd never tried a homicide trial. He ran on cutting costs. He ran as Angela Corey's protege, itself like kind of mind bender. And then he really gutted the office. He fired some senior attorneys who um, had handled death penalty cases for years successfully, were very well respected. And uh, you really see what, you know, a couple of lawyers in Florida have said to me, like deadly combination where you have this very aggressive, skilled lawyers in the prosecutor's office and a really stripped down, inadequate public defender. And he is also up for election on August 30th. So you can see the problems in Jacksonville. And then you can also see this opportunity for change. Uh, just going to the family's uh, objection, I, I why is it that the family not wanting a murderer to be executed. Why should that be dispositive? Why should that even matter? I don't think we want, we don't generally want to have victims determining the course of justice, right? Yeah, that's an interesting um, element of this. I mean, one of the things Angela Corey said to me was that the the wishes of the victim should not control the decision to seek the death penalty. And I think in a lot of ways, I would agree with that, that you don't want to hand over that decision. I think that The reason it matters here is that Darlene Farah actually really investigated the history of James Rhodes, this man who killed her daughter, and found herself not sympathizing with him and not forgiving him, but siding with sparing his life because of what defense lawyers call mitigating evidence, because he'd had this terrible life. And as Darlene says, that the state raised him. And so she sort of sees the state as having made him what he is. That part of it, I think, is important because those are exactly the considerations that the law requires prosecutors and juries to take into account. And then the other thing is that there's just been a really quite brutal reaction from the state attorney to Darlene's opposition to the death penalty. So this week after my story ran and this research from Harvard in particular came out and Angela Corey was under fire, she said she accused Darlene of caring more about seeking publicity than about grieving for her daughter which is cruel and unfair. And then she also said something I think was very revealing, which was that other victims' families know to sit quietly and wait and trust her to seek justice. And I, while I don't think victims' families should control these decisions, I also don't think that there's any reason in which we should expect them to sit quietly. I mean, they they should matter in the equation, right? Their experience of the criminal justice system is important, even if we don't want them to be holding the reins of the decisions that prosecutors make. If, if Merrick Garland gets on the Supreme Court, are there then five Supreme Court votes to fully abolish the death penalty? Is this is the groundwork being laid for a case which says we're going to take it out at the Supreme Court level? Or do you think that what's going to happen is this continued sort of erosion at the state level where fewer and fewer states have it, fewer and fewer states carry executions out, and then 
in 30 years, someone says, you know what, this is really not a used punishment anymore. It has become anathema to most of the country. Therefore, it is now cruel and unusual and we're getting rid of it. Or do you think it's coming sooner than that? I don't think that a Justice Garland means that right away we have a successful challenge and no more death penalty across the country. Justice Kennedy is also very much in play here. I mean, he's the one who's authored decisions that ended the death penalty for people with intellectual disabilities and people who committed their crimes as juveniles. And he's really promoted the idea that the more unusual a punishment becomes in terms of the actual sentencing practices as opposed to the law on the books, that all of that matters for the question of whether a punishment is unconstitutional because it's, quote, cruel and unusual, the words that we have in the Eighth Amendment that the Supreme Court relies on and has interpreted. So so even though I think they're in some ways already um, the votes or at least interest in this approach on the Supreme Court, which presumably Garland would add to, though we really don't know the answer to that, it's not going to happen soon. And the reason I think is twofold. And one is that the Supreme Court got seriously burned on this in the 70s. They thought they were ending the death penalty in 1972. There were five votes for the idea that it was too arbitrary for different reasons to be constitutional. And there was a huge backlash. People were furious. There's a lot of popular support for the death penalty, more than the now, but it's still the majority position. The states revised their laws. The death penalty kind of came back with a big roar. The court is not going to be eager to put itself in that position. And the more the death penalty atrophies, the more it sort of is whittled away on a local level, the easier it is for the Supreme Court to step in. You can see a kind of parallel to how the Supreme Court got to, you know, declaring the constitutional right for same-sex marriage. I mean, there are lots of differences, obviously, here. We're talking about, like, a happy, positive, kind of glowing thing as opposed to, like, preventing executions, a quite grim subject. But this question of, like, how many states do you need to have on board? How unusual does something have to be for the Supreme Court to decide that it's no longer kind of part of the social compact? That's similar. And we saw gay marriage move very quickly. I don't think the death penalty is moving with the same kind of rapidity. But I do think the strategy of trying to whittle it away, and mostly the most effective way you do that is by providing good defense lawyers. That seems really promising to me if if your goal is to end it or reduce it or just to simply make it more fair because the people who are being tried where death is on the line actually have good lawyers. When I imagine voting for Trump, I'm, I definitely am not voting for Trump. I don't want Trump. But when I imagine like friends I have, family I have who are thinking about it, that Supreme Court argument is compelling, right? That, okay, we'll have a terrible president for four years, but then we, we won't have a generation or two of lefty judges who will ruin America, if that's your viewpoint. So if it's not just Merritt Garland, but it's, you know, three more farther left judges, I would love to abolish the death penalty. I'm not for the death penalty. But if someone were for the death penalty and a host of other issues, it, it does is that a reasonable concern that we on this issue, like many others, we this election could potentially transform the country for for decades. Like, how, how real is that concern? Well, I mean, look, the Merrick Garland seat in itself is going to make a difference. I mean, I'm calling it that. It's not his seat. The the who gets to fill Justice Scalia's seat. If a Democratic president, whether it's, you know, President Obama's choice of Garland or a future Hillary choice, that's going to change the composition of the court. No question. What happens beyond that is a li- not as clear. I mean, the the three 
oldest members of the Supreme Court right now are Ginsburg, Kennedy, and Breyer. Ginsburg and Breyer obviously are already Democratic appointees. So replacing them doesn't change the equation of the nine. Replacing Justice Kennedy is a big deal. But, you know, it's possible that he would wait for eight years. He seems to be in perfectly good health. So I guess the, my my answer is there's already this change on the line, which I would argue the voters already approved in electing President Obama because, uh, you know, his choice, there's there's no constitutional reason why we're not proceeding with that choice right now, why the Senate has is not acting. The other thing to remember is that the Supreme Court, first of all, does not have so much power, right? I mean, when you think about the issues that the Supreme Court affects in the end, it is not necessarily the bread and butter of American life. They're, yes, they're really important legal issues. I'm obsessed with them, but they're not controlling the way most people live their lives day to day necessarily. And the other thing about the Supreme Court is it rarely gets way out of sync with public opinion. For the reasons we were just talking about, there'll be a big backlash, then they'll pull themselves back in. And so the notion that there's going to be some like radical transformation of American law or society or the economy because of some crazy lefty Supreme Court seems really implausible to me. I think that idea that the Supreme Court doesn't get wildly out of whack with public opinion holds for things like abortion and the death penalty and, and crime and punishment and things which the public pays attention to or are easy to understand. I think if you look at what the Supreme Court done, mm-hmm. has done around corp, the rights of corporations – uh, it's totally out of whack if Americans paid attention to it or knew about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, when you look at the the idea, you know, we Americans did pay attention to the idea of, you know, corporate personhood and that seeming like it had had no limits to it. Uh, and it, yes, if you look at some of the pro-corporation, pro-chamber of commerce rulings on arbitration and other issues – you see it being extremely sympathetic to business interests. But if that's your concern, then you would actually want a, a court that tilts more toward Democratic appointees because those have been cases with five to four majorities where it's been the Republican appointees who've held the cards. I have one more death penalty type question, which is why does nobody talk about the awfulness of life without parole as a sentence, which is very a very expensive sentence and a and a kind of dooming sentence, and it just creates a class of people who, you know, sort of ghost people who were paying to house, who have no hope, and, you know, who can never be productive citizens in the world. And and that almost seems to me a – it's not a worse fate than the death penalty. I'm sure if, if I were given the two options, I would choose life without parole over being executed. But it's a pretty terrible, um, terrible alternative to the death penalty. Yes. Juvenile life without parole sentences actually are very much on the table. In both Florida and Pennsylvania in particular, there are hundreds of people who receive those sentences for crimes, murders at this point that they committed as juveniles who are being resentenced thanks to a couple of rulings by the Supreme Court. So that's in play. And I think that's really important because obviously we have all this um, science now about the adolescent brain that suggests that people who committed these crimes when they were younger weren't necessarily fully in control of themselves. And some of the accusations of murder are, you know, people who were like the driver of the car, not the person who pulled the trigger. And so that seems particularly out of line. You know, I think there's a 
deep question about people like James Rhodes, who were over the age of 18 and committed terrible crimes and whether they deserve to be ever readmitted into society, even if it is inefficient and costly to keep them in prison. I also think the fear of people who believe in the importance of very harsh punishment as a form of deterrence is that if the country were to end the death penalty, then the next move by, you know, criminal defense types would be to start going after life without parole as a sentence. Maybe that would be uh, actually like a better outcome um, if you think that this is an unfair or um, just, uh, you know, not cost efficient way of um, allocating punishment in the country. Um, But I do think it's a separate question from the death penalty. Yeah, I, I, um, I've never talked about this publicly, but um, I have a, a relative who who committed a murder and had a childhood a lot like the one you described, just a horrible, horrible institutionalized childhood, and for various mitigating reasons was sentenced to eight years and is now out. It is a beautiful thing to see someone in their 40s working so hard to make a meaningful second half of their life after that experience, uh, after a horrible, horrible beginning of their life. And and if you knew all the details of the murder, which mm-hmm. I won't get into, it, it, it wasn't, it was illegal and he shouldn't have done it, but it, it was a, you, you, you don't feel bad for the victim in this case. And just being a part of that, a little bit of a part of, of watching this person's hoping to make their 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s a little bit productive. It really is a beautiful thing to witness. It's it you know if if a if a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged then maybe a softy on this because I used to be a lot more conservative on on crime and punishment issues is, is someone who's actually witnessed somebody who's had that second chance and it does make you wish our system was set up to support that better. Well, there's the, the flip of that, Adam. It's always been a liberal as a conservative who's been to jail. Right, 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 right. Exactly. Or whose cousin yeah. has. Yeah. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're sitting with your home distillery in your vacation house, Adam, what are you going to be chattering about with the Davidsons? I don't know if college-age kids understand that people in their mid-40s think of themselves as like, oh, I just graduated from college. But that is my continual experience to remember that, oh, I've been alive longer after college than before college. And so this whole world of trigger warnings and and not allowing people on campus who disagree with you has been very, this is when I feel like an old man and get very confused and upset. And I was just proud of my alma mater, University of Chicago, which sent a letter to the incoming class of 2020 saying, we're not into that. We don't do trigger warnings. We don't shield you from complicated ideas. Um, This is a place where we wrestle with complicated ideas, upsetting ideas, the world as it is. And and I felt very proud of the University of Chicago. I also felt like maybe that letter was written by a bunch of people just like me, and we're completely missing something really important that we don't understand. That's That's awesome. Emily, what's your chatter? I've been reading some of the requiems for Gawker this week, which is shutting down um, thanks to this funding of this lawsuit by Peter Thiel. And I just wanted to call out among the various best lists of the really excellent journalism Gawker has published over the years, three different pieces 
that I read this week and really enjoyed. One is called The Men Who Left Were White by Josie Duffy about her own family background. One is in a much more kind of typical gawker, funny, mean tradition um, by Jessica Cohen, Burning Bridges That Never Really Mattered. It's her takedown of an editor at Star asking for her to pull down a post as the editor of Gawker, and she just completely makes mincemeat of him. And then the third is a piece by John Cook called The Dewatergating of American Journalism, in which he points out the various ways in which our hallowed saints Woodward and Bernstein actually did all these unethical, shady, even illegal things along the way to, you know, reporting the biggest scoop, the biggest story of the 20th century. It's just a good reminder that journalism is not and can't always be an entirely clean pursuit. So anyway, if you're in the mood to look back over some really excellent work that Gawker did, take a look at those three pieces. We'll post links to them. Cool. I want to chatter about a TV show that me and Mrs. Plotz are watching on Netflix called The Get Down. And it's about the birth of hip hop in the late 1970s. It tells the story of a group of five young men and various other characters as they come to understand what hip hop is and build hip hop. It's a subject which I'm not intrinsically that interested in. It's not my world. It's very unfamiliar in a lot of ways. But it is. It's just awesome. It's it's created by Baz Luhrmann, who you may know from his very lurid and operatic and genre bending movies like Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge. This show has all of that. It has a, it kind of has a, it's very hyper. Everything is oversaturated. The, there's, there's not just a little bit of graffiti. There's a ton of graffiti. The outfits mm-hmm. are just over the top. The afros are so big. You can't believe them. The, the emotional tenor of it is very overwrought. A lot of the time it's overacted, but it's beautiful. The music's incredible. It's tense. And it's so much fun. I strongly recommend The Get Down if you're looking for something to watch. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Ash Davidson is the small voice in the background of this podcast. <laughs> Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest. Our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. And please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Please do that. Leave a comment and rating while you are there. For Emily Bazelon and our unusually able and capable and vicious guest, Adam Davidson. I'm David Plotz. We'll talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.